put on the uniform and found myself. I served my country and fell in love with me. Travel the world being all I could be. God showed me here is where I'd be. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Women Veterans Social Justice Network here on Heroes Media Group. This is Bridgette McCoy, your wonderful host. I'm so honored that you're here listening to our podcast every week. Today, we have the uh, distinguished honor of having Luz Helena and Trina McDonald. Um, they're both going to be uh, talking to us today about their military experience, their um, time and during service and their transition out of the military, and then talking to us about the wonderful projects that they're working on related to Me Too Military. Thank you both so much for joining me today, Trina and Lucy. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. So let's get into um, maybe Lucy, give us a little bit of information about you know, your experience, why you went in the military in the first place and chose being a Marine. I mean, this is an amazing um, pathway for women. And so uh, some people are like, why would you do that? And so let's give a little bit of information about why you chose the Marine Corps. Sure. Um, in uh, 1997, I was looking at, you know, getting close to my senior year of high school. And I'd grown up in Long Island, New York. I hadn't had family in the military, um, but I definitely felt this sort of this calling for, you know, to experience the authenticity of service and to understand what that's like. Um, and I originally showed up at the recruiting office wanting to join the Army and wanting to go into the reserves so that I could do college at the same time. At that time, the Marine Corps recruiter showed up pretty early and he asked, hey, girl, what you doing here, you know? And I said, I'm, I'm waiting on the Army recruiter what, you think you can't do the Marine Corps? And I was like, just watch me. Um, so it became sort of a thing, you know, it was, oh, you want to go reserves? Well, why? You can't do active duty? And I said, watch me. And so that kind of attitude led me to have my first duty station overseas as kind of a, you know, bet you won't do it. No, watch me. Here I go. Really, the, the branch of service was, I feel like it was almost chosen for me, but I knew early on that I wanted to serve. I just didn't know in what capacity until I joined. Wow. That's, I've, I've heard lots of interesting stories, but it always, the central thread that I keep hearing is that for women, that it's like either a, a family member challenged them in some way, even if it was like, oh, you can't do it, or um, someone in their community challenged them by saying, uh, are you tough enough, you know, and so it's always mm -hmm. interesting to me to hear uh, when women talk about it, and I'm, I, I don't know all the narratives of men, so I don't know if they experience that same, are you tough enough for it, kind of conversation before they join, but I think it's interesting, it's an interesting um, thread that kind of goes into many of the narratives of, of our women who serve, and so I'm going to go to you, Trina, and kind of ask you the same question, uh, what was it? that kind of was a deciding factor for you to, just, you know, to choose the, the, the branch and to go into the military? Well, for me, it was, I had a grandfather, you know, coming from a small town in West Kentucky, you know, having this this background of everybody kind of just stayed at home and, and didn't really get outside of that particular area. My grandfather had been in the Navy, and it was, 
for me, I'm like, okay, if my grandpa can do it, I can do it. You know, but hmm. it was just, you know, kind of like what Luz was saying about wanting to be a servant. And, you know, I wanted to kind of follow in his footsteps. I wanted to be a servant. It wasn't, it, it, I had, you know, for me, I had the opportunity to go to college. I had two scholarships for basketball. And I gave wow. up those scholarships because I wanted to be a servant. And it was just hmm. that when I'm sure calling for me to do that, you know, it seemed to fit with, you know, the disciplines that I had to be in sports. You know, and so it was just, a, it seemed like a good fit for me, but he challenged me, that's for sure. You know, and so for me, it was just a choice, you know, to, to move forward. And, you know, I figured I could go to college there too. It would get me out of this small town in Kentucky. And, you know, it was just something that was really, I don't know, it was just a, it was just a calling for me to go into the Navy. Wow. So for our listeners, just in case you missed it, we have, um, Navy veteran Trina McDonald and Marine, because uh, once a Marine, always Marine, uh, loses yeah. Helena. <laughs> and so uh, they chose the um, they, they they chose it based on their own personal preferences to go into um, each of those branches. Um, and so when you once you got when, and either of you can answer this question, and once you got into the um, your prospective branches of service, were you surprised at all by your um, the, the job that you had and, and the, the maybe good or bad treatment that you may have uh, received while you were serving? I'll go ahead and answer. So for, for, you know, a little bit about my experience was I had a recruiter that was very flirtatious and, you know, and, and you know, kind of fits this in my military career, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't a surprise, you know, no one surprised me as far as what was gonna take place. I felt like I was really prepared, you know, like I said, because of my athletic background and wanting to be a leader. So it right. seemed like a perfect fit, you know, when I went into boot camp and you know, I did have, you know, experiences with, you know, like our company commanders, you know, kind of challenging me to um like say things about certain certain other service members. I mean, it was just this really interesting experience, but it wasn't it wasn't shot by any means about what I was getting into. Okay. I just thrived in that in that environment. So Luce, would you have did you have the same type of you know, what's your perspective on on that? Um for me it was, you know, it was kind of a shock. Again, kinda of to to set the scene a little, I was I went in at 17 years old, just like Trina. Um, and by the time I'd finished boot camp and gotten to my first duty station in Okinawa, um, I was only 18. So I had just come off the cusp of like watching GI Jane before I went in <laughs> and believing that, you know, I believed truly that there was this equal treatment for men and women. Um, and it was reinforced to me in boot camp in Marine Corps, they separate you by gender. Um, so women train with women, men train with men. And, uh, you know, and so I believe, like, because we had been through and experienced the exact same form of training, that ultimately when I got to my duty station that I would be treated as an equal. And I, there, I, it didn't occur to me that there'd be a reason that I'd be treated different. Um, so prepping to go to Okinawa, I remember, um, you know, I decided at that moment I'd never been 
very like girly and wore skirts or anything. And I was like, this is the time I'm going to do that. I feel comfortable enough um, and strong enough inside and out to show up in a skirt and a pink tank top. And, you know, and I remember showing up in Okinawa and getting off the bus there. And, um, and first thing that shocked me was, you know, there was like 60 guys to every one woman. Um, so I was like, am I in the wrong place? <laughs> you know, what are we doing? Right. And then at the same time, you know, as I got into my job, as I got into the unit, um, I started to realize that it was not a feeling that I was equal. And, you know, and, and just that day, that first initial day being stared at, I, I'd never wished that I had put on just t-shirt and jeans and tried to blend in more than I did that day. Um, but, you know, and, and it, sort of set the tone for, okay, this is definitely different than I'm expecting. Um, but it was, I mean, it was less than a month in and I began to experience sexual harassment from my senior um, staff non-Christian officer. So that was, you know, I was kind of like, wow, I guess this, at the time, it made sense that this was sort of an occupational hazard of being a woman in the military. This is one of those things you're told don't be so sensitive, suck it up, you know, this is part of the job. And, mm-hmm. and, and at that time, again, very different now, but at that time, um, there were people to advocate for you. There wasn't a place to go to tell people this is going on. And if you did, nobody really cared. Yeah. It was that you're too sensitive, you're, you know, too much of that. So it was definitely a shock, um, but it became the norm. And, and I learned how to adjust. So uh, for our listening audience, um, I think that what will in- unfold is a conversation about uh, military sexual trauma, um, harassment while serving in the military, unequitable or inequitable treatment during service for women and for women of you know, women of color. So it, th- this conversation will go into that direction because both of our guests today are part of a movement, Me Too military movement, and for those who have not uh, heard of all of the things that are going on with the military and with uh, the Me Too movement that Tarana Burke started um, some 10 or 12 years ago, um, Me Too military uh, was a, a moniker, a hashtag that was started out of that uh that that movement um, that is gaining momentum. And so I think we're probably going to skip conversating about the transition right now. We'll probably come back to the transitioning out of the military. But I think um, with you bringing that forward, it's important to talk about the, um, the experience of why you're doing the work that you're doing, that you're both doing um, as part of uh, – your philanthropy work in the community, bringing this very challenging situation. And, and for those listeners who know, I'm a sexual assault survivor as well and involved fairly heavily in the uh, movement to change the laws related to how men and women are treated after an incident happens and whether or not someone goes on a sexual assault registry, <laughs> a predator registry after serving. So. Full disclosure to our listeners who may, we kind of walked in on that, but I definitely want to have a little bit of a conversation about, you know, the um, Me Too military kind of movement that is, is, is happening right now. 
and either of you can speak to that. Trina, maybe <clears throat> Trina, maybe you can give us a little bit of insight there. Well, you know, basically, you know, what happened with, you know, with my experience with Lucy's experience with yours is that there was this lack of sense of, of justice. Um, you know, and with the major military movement started, you know, I think that it really shines this light on, you know, there's a voice missing in the military community and, you know, we wanted to come together and do something about that. As for myself, you know, I've spent years in legislation and working on, you know, certain bills and I had, you know, since 2012, you know, doing that type of work after doing the Invisible War and being a part of that documentary. It really had gained momentum that people were paying attention now. People, you know, were curious about how they could help people, you know, that had been assaulted in the military. And, you know, what had happened was, you know, after years of going through the things that Liz and I both went through, because we're, our services are 10 years apart, I started 1988 through 1990, we start, we had met at an actual equine um, therapy retreat, and we started talking about how our differences, you know, even in the time difference, that 10-year period of time, that nothing was changing. And we, as you know, as a collective with, you know, these two veterans who had two different types of experiences, you know, with how we went in and the things that we did, you know, we started seeing the commonalities. And with doing the B2 military, we, we basically made this decision that being on top of a mountain in the middle of, you know, California that, you know, together we can do most anything. You know, as individuals, we have, you know, a smaller voice. You know, but as this collective of, you know, survivors, we started getting together and talking about how we could create change. I had a few people ask me, well, why a Me Too military? Why not just, you know, with part of the Me Too movement? Um, and it really lends to the fact that, you know, the military is a very unique um, community, and we have, you know, if we're to look at it in terms of needs, we have very different needs. When we go home after work, we are still essentially at our job. You know, if we're living on base or even off base, we're working 24-7. Um, and so the process of reporting, the legal process of what goes on, you know, it, it is all very different than the way that it looks. And so we, we came together to sort of really meet the needs of survivors, but also, you know, that are currently serving, but also the veterans um, who have served before and address some of those specifics um, that are vastly different than the civilian population. Um, and so, and, you know, just same thing, like Trina said, being up there on the mountain, that was an incredibly powerful moment where we realized, hey, we'd, we'd come pretty far individually. What would happen if we you know, kind of join forces and um, and put all of the resources and the information and um, the recovery together and then reached out to other people, kind of climbed down the mountain and said, hey, you know, we, we found a way up this peak. Let us help you. That's typically how uh, movements get started. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, people, you know, when people decide that it's, it's, a, it's time that the, you know, <clears throat> you know, they have the energy to move, the ball forward, and in some cases, the timing of of in from an energy point of view of the of the world that brings it together um, can be another part of it. But I definitely see going to a retreat, uh, 
being a, a and being in those spaces where you have given you that you given space to uh be able to see a little bit further like you said being on the mountaintop kind of thing so i'm 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 visualizing you guys being on a mountaintop kind of having this conversation although it may not have taken place that way i'm 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 animating it in my brain at this point, so that's where my where I was going with it, like this beautiful scene, um, made for TV version of what happened. Right. So, <laughs> so, uh, so let's take maybe a step back because I think, you know, you both have done such a wonderful job of, of, um, you know, positioning the part about the Me Too military. Let's talk about your transition out of the military. What was the primary factor for you deciding, mm, I think I've done enough here, or mm, I think they've done enough to me here, I need to leave. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's one of or the other or both. Uh, so, uh, you know, Luz, you can tell, you know, talk first, and then uh, Trina can give us a, her perspective as well. You're listening to WVSJ, the Women Veterans Social Justice Network. Uh. Like I said, I, when I was, shortly after I arrived in Okinawa, um, you know, I was, there was sexual harassment on a constant. Um, and then, so I said something. Uh, finally, it just got to the point it was unbearable. I said something, and the answer was to transfer me to a new unit. Not to punish the person, but to transfer mm-hmm. me. I saw that as an opportunity to just start over and to be like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll stay nice and quiet. Um, didn't go out much, kind of kept to myself. And uh, one night I got an ask, do you want to go out with female Marines? And that night I ended up in a nightclub. I was drugged and raped and left on the side of the road at 4 a.m. And so that process evolved. And, you know, I, I tell people, look, it never occurred to me not to report it. So that's what I did. And unfortunately, the more I pushed for things to be done, the more the military pushed back. Um, and at the time I was in E3, so I went outside the chain of command, requested mass, contacted a, you know, a congressman from New York State at the time. I did everything I could to ask for help. Um, yeah. and during an open investigation, they allowed that man to separate with another than honorable discharge. And so they turned around and because I had reported I was drugged the night I was raped, the Marine Corps did a retaliatory drug investigation on me. Yeah. And ended up separating me with an other than honorable discharge. So I was, I reported in December. I spent six months on legal hold, not allowed to leave the island. Um, I was isolated to my own bedroom. Like I wasn't, I had my own barracks room. I wasn't even able to share a room anymore with anyone. It was just, it was a nightmare. It was complete isolation. Um, and at the time, what they explained to me is, look, you know, you're facing all these charges. Um, false charges, but you're facing all these charges, and they really did a good job at intimidating me to believe that if I didn't sign this other than honorable discharge, remember they handed me a piece of paper. You know, you are you're facing life imprisonment, and at 19 years old in a foreign country, post trauma, unable to see family, having nobody to help with this. And no mental health counseling, no talk of PTSD or, or recovering from this. Um, it was enough to scare me to sign the paper and, and get out. And, you know, all I had wanted was to be in and to serve. And so, you know, it was it was kind of a double whammy. I think what happened, the, yeah. the process 
was worse. That six months was some, in some senses worse because it was yeah. such a betrayal. Um, mm. so for me, that was, you know, my exit from the military. Number one, it wasn't my choice. Um, but the most difficult part is when I got home, there was nobody there to talk to. I was not, because of my discharge, I was excluded from any VA benefits, meaning I couldn't gain mental health care from the VA. Mm-hmm. And for 16 years, I remained that way, and I didn't talk about it. I didn't say a word. And I lived with this overwhelming, just, you know, post-trauma. I didn't even know what was going on with me. You know, and, and it was really just the bravery of finally coming forward and saying, I'm done. I'm going to share my story in 2013. And, and I did. And, you know, shortly after met Trina. And so the ball kind of got rolling after that. But it was a very difficult transition out because it was not what I wanted. And what I needed was help. And I didn't get it. So. Yeah. It's only 24 years of story. Yeah. yeah. It always is. Yeah. You know, you know, even though, like I said, we're, our, our time differences are 10 years apart, there's this, cause my, like I said, I was in 88, 90, and you were in 10 years later. You know, when I went to my first duty station, first of all, I, you know, they said you're going to ADAC Alaska, and I was like, where's ADAC Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, looked on the map and looked in the Aleutian chain, and it was like, oh, Lord, what did I do to get sent to this place? <laughs> you know, so when I got there, I was met by a sponsor, is what they called him, a, a man. And he was going to be the person that was going to show me around the base and show me where to go, what to do. You know, and I got there and they issued me a parka and I knew I was in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, so I kind of went into this, this situation where, you know, within three months, I got there on Valentine's Day, 1989, and within three months, I was. I was drugged and raped, and it would go on. That would happen two more times. You know, each time it was, you know, just go hang out with your friends. There was I made friends with a female and a and a male service um, member. Maybe got into and maybe you know one was a bosun's mate, one was a seaman, and we we had this really cool relationship. But it seemed like every time I went out with them, something happened. You know, yeah. and so basically. You know, with them, and then it was, you know, two other people, you know, on two different occasions. Things just, I, it didn't occur to me at the time because I was so scared that yeah. who would I go to? Because, yeah. you know, the thing about the people that were my perpetrators, they were a part of the security force. The other two were a part of the security force there. You know, and I was stationed at Naval Security Group ADAC. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. this is not going to go well. And, you know, what they did instead of investigating, you know, anything, you know, being curious about what was going on with me because they started drinking heavily, um, started, you know, really kind of screwing up in my work. And rather than going, you know, what's going on with this person who went from being a floral sailor to really kind of not, you know, being herself, no one thought of investigating what was going on with that, but instead of, Instead of doing that, they started investigating me for being gay. And so I was this really broken, you know, 18-year-old kid, you know, who was like, you know, really had this trust and this, you know, we're supposed to be there for each other. We're, we're going to die for each other if need be. I mean, you know, just really 
felt strongly about that because of how we were trained. And, you know, from going from that to being on the beach on July 4th, you know, where I had four Marines, because we were stationed with Marines, I had four Marines come and pick me up and throw me into the Bering Sea and leave me for dead. And the person that I last saw was one of these females that was a part of this, that had assaulted me prior. You know, so they really sent me the message strong and hard that, you know, you're not going to say anything, you're not going to do anything, because this is going to be the result. And, you know, so in that, in that particular assault, that particular attack, when they attempted my, um, they attempted my life, I, I messed up my knee. And, mm-hmm. you know, so that would start this transition of going back to the lower 48, I went to California, and had knee surgery, and so this whole, perpetual cycle of, uh, you know, drinking alcohol, really wanting to check out. I didn't want to do anything. You know, it was like I either didn't want to do anything or I did everything to the full max. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? And so basically when they said that, hey, you're going to, we're going to go ahead and discharge you honorably because, you know, you these messed up. And, you know, so, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of things that happened, you know, like with my knee injury, we kind of back up. Because I had a senior chief that was like, hey, you know, we're going to send you down to uh, San Diego to get your compensation for your knee. And I had a senior chief that was, another senior chief that was like, you know, you only give 10%. It's not even worth going. So, again, my trust in these people was still, I was wanting to hold on to that. And I didn't right. go. Mm-hmm. You know, and so by the time I got out of service, I was so disgusted. I was so broken. I burned my uniforms. I was like, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm done. And, you know, because of all of that, the trail that happened, I mean, I ended up very, you know, into into addiction, and I just kind of fell into that. I just became this tumultuous existence, you know, up until the point that I was homeless and sleeping in the back room of a bar at my friend's, you know, that my friend's owned. Yeah. And so, you know, the transition for me was very much like, oh, I'm, I'm done, and I mean, I'm done. <laughs> you know, and it yeah. wouldn't be until, you know, I didn't even know I was eligible for services, even though I was honorably discharged. No yeah. one ever sat down with me and said, well, here's what you can do. You know, none of those things happened. It wasn't until 1995 when I met a Vietnam vet who was like, gave me a card and said, here's what you need to do. You know, and so that kind of started the process of some healing for me because that, that desire to have a a veteran or a, a service member that believed in me and I believed in them and trusted, you know, came to fruition. Right. That camaraderie it, uh, is very, first of all, both, thank you both for sharing those parts of your experiences with us, with me here and with the listeners. I think it's important that people hear, again, the first person narrative of women who served and those experiences um, and how, you know, what those experiences meant and hear it from your own voices and in in your own tones and the timbre in your voice, all of those things. Because I think that that is important because when we come out of the military, in general, we just are in, invisible to some degree. And then even when people are saying, I'm doing things to make you visible, even in the things that they're doing to, that they perceive that they're doing to make us visible, they're making us even more invisible. There, there's, there's some element of, of taking something from 
you know, what you're, what you're, um, taking from the stature of the service, um, through their behavior. So it's always interesting to me to hear these processes and then someone really coming along full circle and then saying, I see you, I accept you, and not only do I see you and accept you and your service, I want to, um, be, legitimately be someone to help you and, and how that absolutely means so much especially um, for transitioning veterans, but very specifically for military sexual trauma survivors because most of the process of everything that happened was diminishing and devaluing. And so it's, it, it's ultimately even more important to have people, you know, value and honor and welcome and, 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 and go out of their way almost to, to do that. So, um, and I'm speaking from uh, my perspective as well, because uh, that's been those, those have been the factors that have made things better for me as well. Experiencing homelessness, most of our listeners don't know that, you know, military sexual trauma happening in the mil, you know, things happening in the military like that. That trauma uh, impacts the suicide numbers, that impacts the homelessness numbers, that impacts the uh, unemployable un- unemployability numbers, and so when People are asking those questions like, well, how does this happen to a veteran? It's like, hmm, mm-hmm. let's go back a couple of steps and talk about what happens to you when you're in the service. <laughs> that right. creates the atmosphere right. for these types of things to um, have a high incidence in the women veteran community. Let's talk about going to the root cause of some of these challenges and not talk about just adding a salve at the end. So. I definitely appreciate you both for bringing that perspective. Can you, um, so I'm a sexual assault survivor. Uh, I'm heavily involved with organizations that have um, been working on one level or another to, um, you know, eradicate sexual assault in the military and at the same time um, support the um, men and women who have had the injury. I consider it a moral injury. Um, some people see it a different way, but I consider it a moral injury. They've had the moral injury of having a brother or sister uh, attack them and injure them sexually um, at someone that they were serving side by side with. And so I work with those organizations to to change uh, the perception of what that looks like because it's not just someone had a drink and, and someone reversed their they, – they wanted to have sex and then they decided not to and then they cried rape because there's all these mythologies out there. Um, or that, mm-hmm. that survivors lie. Like we, we actively fight against those narratives and those behaviors and those policies and those, um, cultural norms every single day. So tell me what it is about Me Too Military, um, that you all are doing very specifically laser focused wise that adds value to what's already out here but then also um, brings its own nuance to the to the community. Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and start with that. So um, our organization began, you know, again, began as an idea up on the mountain, um, and I believe that was April, correct me if I'm wrong, Trina, but I think that was April of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, once we had both gotten home, we did a lot of, we, we talked a lot. We talked almost every day, probably five times a day. 
still do. Good. Or still do. Um, Good. And, you know, and, and we did a lot of uh, a lot of asking ourselves that question: What is needed? And you know, at first we we launched our organization in January of this year, um, and we believed initially that what was needed was these big changes in legislation and um, <laughs> addressing the fact that there's not. You know, there's not adequate um, free legal counsel. A lot of people who get out don't have honorable discharges, and they have to go through the discharge upgrade process, and they have to, you know, in order to get their benefits, in order to be compensated for mental health issues and, and to receive help. Um, so there's there's a lot of these legal battles that go on. There's a lot of the laws that need to be changed, and we tried that. You know, we, we went to Washington. We really tried to be an organization that was going to take that all on. Um, <laughs> and what happened in the process, you know, and I'm so glad we did it. I'm so glad that we got to walk that walk um, because what we discovered is that, yes, yeah, those things are needed, right? We need to make changes in legislation. We need access, better access in, um, to mental health care to address the discharge review board upgrade process. Yes, yeah, all those things are needed. But what we walked away from a lot of that with um, after returning from Washington a couple of times was this idea that, you know what, recovery and how we remain resilient and how we build community, those that's the starting ground, right? We, mm-hmm. we absolutely believe that, like, the mental health of the veterans is first. First and foremost, mm-hmm. that is the most important thing. So we can't deal with all these other things unless we're sure as an organization that we are directing people to first start by taking care of yourself. Got to put your mask on. Got to get into some sort of mental health. Um, you know, we came up with, we really kind of then made a focus about, well, let's just, let's just share our stories of recovery. Let's tell right. what, you know, how do we get up that mountain? What does that look like? Um, you know, for me, I had no there was nobody leading me through this. Nobody said, hey, you know, file an intensifile and do these things. And I walked a lot of the walk alone, scared. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nobody saying, you know, we're here to help. I mean, it was, I had lawyers fighting for me, but I, what I didn't have is somebody day to day. And mm-hmm. so that is one of the things that we wanted to address and change and, you know, and actually build a community of survivors where people understand you, you don't have to do this alone at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so our focus is, you know, to build resilience in the community of survivors of sexual assault in the military um, and by three ways. Number one, we educate you. You should know all the things that are accessible to you in all the different areas of and stages of recovery. Um, and, you know, and we continue to do research on our own and we try out all these different alternative you know, therapies, and we see what works and what doesn't. Um, and then we've built a way to connect survivors. You know, we have on our website, join our community, connect survivors so that we can share with one another, like, hey, I tried this and it's great, or, you know, this is a really good resource here for the legal process or the discharge upgrade or the, you know, substance abuse. And then we share it. And that's our, you know, that's how we inspire is we don't stay quiet. We go out there and we say, look, this is, this is what it looks like using art, using equine therapy, recreational therapy, um, non-traditional things that have worked to help us be better human beings 
and help us be, you know, have this ability to have post-traumatic growth instead of a disorder. Right. I don't want to have a disorder all my life. I want to grow not in spite of, but because of the trauma that I went through, because of what I experienced. I want to grow and share that with others. And Trina, you know, she's my best friend because she is 100% committed to the same thing. It's amazing. Um, and we're finding that there's a lot of people that have survived this and they, yeah, they need some help along the way. But at the end of the day, what they really want is to share that experience with others because it helps others grow and them grow. So that's, that's who we are. That's exactly okay. great explanation. Trina, do you have uh, some things you'd like to add? Sure. You know, and, you know, kind of just, you know, following with what Luz is talking about, you know, is that, you know, because, like, I'm in recovery, and so I bring that, my recovery piece to the table, and, you know, I'm able to kind of to let people know that you can recover from alcoholism, you can recover from a drug addiction, you know, and that, that growth that we want so much, you know, is that we, I think when it comes down to it is, you know, when we look at what we're doing with Me Too Military, it's that we just want to share what it's taken for us to get where we're at. Not to say, I know for myself, I'm not like, yay, look at me, I've recovered. It's not that way, you know. I mean, it certainly is. I'm much better today than I was yesterday. And I think that's the key is to be able to share you know, like the recreational therapies, the equine therapies, you know, and, you know, being more artistic or just whatever it takes, you know, it doesn't have to be kept in this box of you can only do recreational therapies or you can only do this particular therapy. Because it's different things have worked for different people. And, you know, and talking about sharing their stories, because that helps everybody else. You know, when, you know, at the end of the day, what we want is, you know, and what we've always wanted is to be a part of a unit that works. And I think this is where we're at in this particular time of doing Beachy Military. Yeah, and Bridget, I think you touched on that earlier. Um, you know, that, that camaraderie, that feeling of being with a unit. When you leave the military, that is, for some of us, non-existent. Mm-hmm. I didn't have sisters and, you know what I mean? I didn't have a... Oh, yeah a community of supporters or people that even, there wasn't even an acronym MST mm-hmm. when Trina and I got out. It was this, you don't talk about this. This is the thing you're supposed to be ashamed of and not say anything. The big so, R word. What? I said the big R word, you know, that's big, you have yeah. rape. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, no. And when no. people say it, they say it low, like, rape. Like it's a whisper. Exactly. Like, why did you change your yeah. tone when you said, you were saying, blah, 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 and then you said, why that? Why is that different? Have you paid attention to the generals even do that? Even when you listen to them in testimony and things, they 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 lean forward and say it like it's a whisper word, like rape. Mm-hmm. Go back and look and listen to them because it's always amazing to me. I'm like, now where where did that come from? Where did, where where did our level of protection for others change? What is the mental mindset that's that's there that that has people respond that way? who should be protectors, you know what I'm saying, from that perspective. Um, not that it's not a bad thing that happens to people and that, you know, it, it, it makes people feel a certain kind of way internally um, because it, it is a crime um, against another person. I think socially, psych- psychologically, emotionally, physically, and legally, 
it's a crime. It, does, it shouldn't just be looked at as just one area of criminal behavior. Uh, again, I have. Can you tell I have some views about that? So <laughs> <laughs> you're right, though. You know, it's people are in general people are uncomfortable when you say race. You know, it's okay for me to come and share my story and be a veteran and you know be a woman of color. And I'm like, um, do you know why I got out? No, tell us a little about that. And as soon as you start talking, like, oh, you know what I'm saying? You asked. Yeah. The thing you asked. And I'm, you know, I think our organization is at that point where we're, you know, if it's so comfortable to say MST, well, mm-hmm. military sexual trauma, let's get to the root. Again, that's a symptom. What is the root? The root is person was assaulted. There was right. a rape that occurred, whether it's to a man or to a woman. There was a rape that occurred. And when we can have open conversations and say those things and change that narrative, then people start to go, okay, yeah, that's, that's very uncomfortable to talk about, but what exactly, you know, why are we so afraid of it? Why are we not embracing it and saying, yeah, since it's so uncomfortable, we should probably do something to prevent it a bit more. And we should probably listen a little bit more to the actual needs of survivors, um, you know, and, and we have found this talking to people for the last, you know, year, for years, that one of the things is we're not, you know, there's a difference. The needs that we have, yes, we have PTSD, many of us, um, but we should not be blocked into, well, let's treat them the same exact way as we do combat veterans. Right. Some people have served in combat and have experienced MST, and they will Absolutely. tell you they are two very different things that should be handled very differently. So, you know, our organization, again, that's one of those, we try to address is um, there is no cookie cutter, you know, treatment. There's no cookie cutter recovery. There's no specific amount of time that, hey, if you're not better in 12 sessions, well, then that's on you. You know, no, this is a lifetime of recovery, and that is only possible if you get out of the isolation and you get around people that understand. And you go, yeah, me, you know, not necessarily about the rape itself, but about the recovery where they go, yeah, me too. You're listening to WVSJ, the Women Veteran Social Justice Network. Oh, my gosh, right? And people don't recognize as survivors, you know, to fly in the morning and then fly out that afternoon and then do sessions all day, it's like, it's it, it it is something it does something to the fiber of your of your soul. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. you and you have to repair from that each and every time. And I love the fact that you all are presenting this um, really clear narrative about you know self care because it, um, with WVSJ yeah. we have always um, incorporated self care as part of anything that we that we do. You know we are culturally competent, um, nuanced organization, we have always, you know, had trauma-informed care specific to the military sexual trauma community because I understand that people perceive that they have trauma-informed care, but it's trauma-informed care on a clinical level, but not specific and nuanced and culturally competent to the military sexual trauma community, and we can have a whole nother podcast about that. And so we always are bringing those things into the place. We do art, we do recreation, we do hypotherapy, we even had horses, we went out and rode the horses and then afterwards um, painted them and and brushed them clean, you know, so 
I know that being in nature, because we have clinical, you know, research that says being in nature calms the brainstem. And so, if, and I'm not, and I'm saying it as a survivor, not saying anything, slighting anyone, but as a survivor, I need my brainstem <laughs> calm yeah. lots of times. <laughs> yeah. So I, if you follow my Facebook at all, you'll see all of those pictures of me in nature. That's real. That's not me posting for Instagram. That's like I need a break. And um, I literally live in the trees in the city of Atlanta. I live, we have coyotes where I live, but I live in the city of Atlanta. So that lets you know how much wooded area I need to survive. It's like a, it's part of our survival kit. You guys can use that. You can say yeah. your MST survivor kit, you know, like survival kit, like, like the outdoors in and nature. getting yeah. in nature and, and connecting with a friend because I think those are so important. We've we've done everything we could in our community to do that, to support that. And so I'm glad that you're that your focus, that your primary focus is that. And so I'm just extending and and Trina knows this because I've loved her a million times about becoming an ambassador with us and all that. But Trina knows I am always for the leader the women out here wanting a philanthropist wanting to make a difference in our community and investing their time and energy, resources and finances into the community of our community at large to make it better. And so those are the people that I want to, I feel like that's my 80-20 rule. It's like I want to find that percentage of people and give them the 80% of my time <laughs> and like here, yeah. this is, you need the resources, you need the thing so that you're successful um, because if we have, because we know the picture that they paint of MST survivors and all that stuff. We know that picture. Yeah, there were some I have all day long. <laughs> yeah, I've I've done everything to dispel that, and and like I said, if you follow me, you know I've done everything to dispel that to present a different narrative, um, and then asking uh, our survivors to share their narratives of their the struggle, but then their successes. We've got to see that part. We've got, and that's why it's important. The format of this podcast is the way that it is because we want that part. Women do. I mean, the statistics on us are astounding. There's like this huge challenge of, you know, suicide and and all of these other negative kind of things, but then you flip it over and it's like we have the highest rate of college graduates and masters and PhDs. 33% mm-hmm. of the college campuses are women veterans. You know, like there's like all of these really 290% annually entrepreneurial growth. So something powerful is available in the women veteran community, and we know those are MST survivors. They might not be saying nothing, but the numbers don't lie. If 20,000 men and women are being injured every year and almost half of that is women, that means that those entrepreneurs are, are women veteran who have been assaulted or injured in some way. It doesn't always have to be physical, it can be harassment and verbal or whatever, but they've, they've experienced something negative in their military experience. It, the numbers don't lie if you cross-correlate them. So I think that you guys are doing a great thing. I think you ladies are doing a great thing. Um, and forgive me for, uh, you know, not asking your gender and squaring that away first but I, um, and being presumptuous. So forgive me for that. But I think that you people, that you are doing great things and that, you know, it's going to be important for leaders in the community who have stature, 
to rally around all of each other. We all need to rally around each other in support mm-hmm. to actually get anything done. We have to collaborate. And, and you don't have to, but it's it's just helpful to collaborate and benefit to benefit the community at large. And so I just wanted to, like, again, give you all kudos because this is not easy work. Um, no. And you have been in the trenches for a while. I've been in trenches for a while. The, our listening audience needs to know this is hard work. Like oh, yeah. every single day. So, we very much still struggle. You know, that's the, I think that's the misconception that we get to this point and we're okay. We still yeah. struggle, but we do yes. it well and we don't do it alone. And I think, yeah. you know, some of the, the things that we've been able to teach others is, you know, I applaud any survivor that comes forward and, and decides to talk publicly. But one of the things our organization does, if someone's going to do that through us, is we require six months of mental health counseling under your belt Absolutely. before you Absolutely. come forward. And at the time that you come forward, if you decide to go public and you want to go to Washington and do all those things, if you do it with our organization, we ask you that you continue in mental health counseling yeah. because mm-hmm. you need it after you do that. Um, and we always tell people, too, you know, if you're going to interview a survivor, be understanding that a survivor has a right to request to have a supporter yeah. In the interview, whether it is over the phone, on the internet, in person, they should never be asked to recall their trauma alone. Right. We don't, I, we don't isolate. So when people call us and they're, hey, Trina, can we talk to you? Sure, but Luce is coming. You know, and, right. Luce, can right. we talk to you? Sure, but I'm bringing along Trina. And if that's not negotiable, then we don't do the interview. Perfect. You know, that's, so, that's that good is stuff. To, oh my God. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I hope that the listeners out there, you know, hear that, whether you're someone that's going to um, interview somebody or you're somebody that wants to talk, know that you, you've got some rights there that you can say, hold on, this is hard work, and I need to do this in a way that protects my mental health as the utmost priority above everything else. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, when you hang up that phone or you leave that interview, all that rawness needs a place to go. Mm-hmm. And you cannot and should not approach it alone. And expect to struggle. Just struggle well and don't struggle by yourself. You know, we're here. <laughs> well, that's you heard my New all... York accent come out. Yeah, that's really, that's really good stuff. I think it's very important. Everything that you said, I absolutely co-sign on that. We do not let we go through media training. You have to, you know, have been with us for a number of years sometimes uh, to even get those opportunities and uh, you definitely, um, if you're talking about trauma, there's some, some perspectives that, you know, we definitely want you to, to, to be mindful of, um, if we're having those interviews. I, I think it's, it's, it's hard. Our listening audience doesn't know we get bombarded with these calls. Can we get a, a woman veteran who's been homeless, who has, you know, uh, been injured, blah, 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 and we want to talk to her, uh, you know, today. And it's like, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, okay. So, so yeah, yeah. So it's so it's that you know, and and you know the victim. You know, when I first came on the scene in 2011, I was like, you're not going to call me a victim. It's like calling you yeah. the B word. It's like you're not you, you're not going to call me that not one more time. You're going to call me a survivor or a thriver or something. But we're not going there. And so even having those conversations with um, with the media. 
and they've been informed. We've educated them over the years. I think a lot of them understand, you know, in general how to um, to interact with uh, with us. There's a lot of uh, you know programs out there that train journalists, and they bring in um, to their their conferences and workshops. They want to have more trauma informed. But like I said earlier, trauma informed is not the same trauma informed cultural competency in military sexual trauma. It's a different space <laughs> and you definitely yeah. need some very specific um, consulting. You can hire me, hire Luz, hire Trina to come and talk to you about those kinds of things. Um, I definitely appreciated you all coming on the, uh, the show. I really feel like we need like three more episodes because we've covered <laughs> so good. much, but we haven't, you know, covered enough, I don't think. And I think that um, as founders, and if you go back and listen to any of our founders um, uh, sessions, um, we didn't even cover, we didn't even dig deep enough to talk about the founder, the founding of an organization, and what that means, and those those mountaintop experience conversations, and the the valleys and the gullies sometimes experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's let's hopefully we can have you back on the show, and both of you, which worked out well. Um, we can both have you both come on and and talk some more about Me Too Military and some of the um, you know some of the projects and things that you have going on. But for our listeners, tell everyone where they can find you on the on the sure. internet. It is it is uh, Me Too Military MVNT dot org. So it's Me Too Military, the abbreviation for Movement dot org, and you will find Trina and I there. Mhm. Awesome, awesome. Thank you all so much for for being here with us and sharing such wonderful stories of narratives of resilience and uh, you know, success and overcoming, you know, difficult challenges within the military and after the military. Definitely appreciate you so much. And thank you to our sponsors, Protect Our Defenders and um AARP Georgia for sponsoring this podcast. We are so grateful for all of the uh, donations that you've given us to support the moving forward of having the narratives of women who serve um, expressed in the media and told from their first-person narratives. Thank you also to the Jimmy Carter Center for hosting us this year at our uh, 10th anniversary gala. We are so honored by that, that experience, and if you're looking for those pictures and Information about that, you can follow our Facebook page at facebook.com, the number 4, WVSJ. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram under WVSJ Network. And we're just looking forward to you following us and listening to us next time. You better check back because it sounds like Luz and Trina are going to be on again talking about uh, founding an organization uh, in the climate that we're in right now as women um, veterans. So thank you so much for listening, and you all have a great, great week. God showed me, here is where I